What does Darwin have to do with racism? Hello, this is John West. I'm vice president of Discovery Institute. And today we're going to talk about the topic of Darwinian racism, especially the pivotal role it played in Nazi Germany. I'm joined by historian Richard Weichart, author of a new book just released that is titled Darwinian Racism, How Darwinism Influenced Hitler, Nazism, and White Nationalism. You can find out more about the book at darwinianracism.org, uh, and you can purchase it at amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com and other online booksellers. Dr. Weikert is Emeritus Professor of History at California State University Stanislaus and the author of multiple books on the intellectual history surrounding Nazism. Those books include From Darwin to Hitler, Hitler's Ethic, and Hitler's Religion. He's also written The Death of Humanity and The Case for Life. Dr. Weikart completed his PhD in modern European history at the University of Iowa. He has been featured in many documentaries, including Expelled with Ben Stein, The Biology of the Second Reich, and Human Zoos, which has over 3 million views on YouTube. So, Dr. Weikart, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having hosting this, and I'm looking forward to it. Great. Uh, and I'll probably switch over since we've known each other for so long to just saying Richard, <laughs> but um, wanted to, everyone should know that you are a professor and, and a doctor and have your PhD. So it's really interesting that your book should come out right now, because the day before it was released, the topic of Nazi racism was all over the national media. <laughs> uh, that's because a very famous celebrity got in hot water for claiming that what the Nazis did wasn't about racism. Uh, actress, comedian, author, film star Whoopi Goldberg ignited a firestorm with her comments. She later apologized, but she also said this in a subsequent interview with Stephen Colbert. Most of the Nazis were white people, and most of the people they were attacking were white people. So to me, I'm thinking, how can you... How can you say it's about race if you are fighting each other? I said, this wasn't racial. This was about white on white. Okay, uh, Richard, uh, Whoopi says it is, was just about white on white. It wasn't about mm -hmm. racism. Um, is she right? <laughs> well, she obviously had a complete misunderstanding of anti-Semitism and the role that anti-Semitism has played historically. Uh, and that's unfortunate because, uh, you know, Obviously, groups like African-Americans who have been marginalized and persecuted over their history, you would hope that they would have empathy for other people who've been persecuted as well. And if there's any group that's been persecuted historically uh, for their ethnic, racial and religious identity, but in the Nazi case, it was considered a racial identity by the Nazis. Uh, it certainly was the Jews. Uh, so I, in my book, I do deal with this issue of how the Nazis construed racism and how they uh, based their notions about race uh, on Darwinian concepts. Although I, I do need to hasten to say that the, the, Dar the uh, Nazis did not get their anti-Semitism specifically from Darwinism, but they integrated their anti-Semitism into a Darwinian framework where they were in this Darwinian struggle for existence with the different races. Okay. What about um, what about the, the Nazis' views of black people and other people of color? Did they have racist views there? Oh, very definitely. They actually uh, ended up uh, sterilizing uh, people who were half black 
in Nazi Germany. These are people who had been fathered by French colonial troops during the French colonial occupation, excuse me, during the French occupation after World War I uh, with colonial troops. Uh, and so they were half black, half Germans. They sterilized them because they didn't want blacks uh, in Germany. They didn't want them reproducing. But it wasn't just blacks and it wasn't even just uh, Aboriginal peoples in other parts of the world and such. Uh, the Nazis thought that different Europeans were of different races too. They talked about the Aryan race or Nordic race, which was supposed to be Northern Germany nor and Scandinavia countries predominantly, and, and also Britain because of the Anglo-Saxons and such. But they actually thought that they were superior to the Slavs and the Southern Europeans uh, as well. So it was even about an inter-European racial uh, construct too. And so they uh, dehumanized uh, the Slavs, just to give one one poignant example, uh, the Nazis published a, a, a propaganda pamphlet that was called Der Untermensch, which means the subhuman. And on the cover of it, there were Russian POWs. So there was, the Slavs were considered subhuman. Well, the Jews were considered subhuman, too. And it's because of their uh, construct, the, the way that the Nazis constructed their racial uh, hierarchies. And when I say Nazis, these were things the Nazis inherited from pre-Nazi sources. Uh, typically, the Nazis didn't invent this themselves. Yeah, no. I, but thank you for for giving that 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 overview of that the fact that first of all, just because people were white didn't mean you can't use racism against it. I have uh, <laughs> grandparents who actually came from Eastern Europe, and so I'm well aware of uh, on some of that. But and, and also with the Jews, and then. But it did also carry over to blacks and others. So I think that's Certainly. and your book is really good in actually giving all of that citing original sources, um, not just secondary sources, but delving deeply into those original sources. Now, um, one of the central ideas of your book is when I read it is that Nazi racism was inspired, at least in part, by these evolutionary ideas of Darwin and his followers. But uh, today, I've heard people claim that the Nazis, they opposed evolution, they banned its teaching from school, and Hitler himself was even a creationist. So I wonder if you could help us sort out fact from fiction here. First, maybe, you know, did Darwinism play a role in Nazi racism? And if so, what was that role? Yeah, it played a huge role because the, the way the Nazis thought of, of the races in terms of the origins is they thought that they had evolved in different uh, environments with different environmental pressures that had caused them to evolve in different ways. And specifically when they talked about the Aryan race and how it evolved, they thought that because it had evolved in uh, Northern uh, times during the ice, as the ice ages were retreating and such, they claimed that there was greater selective pressures there. So they had to become more intellectual. They had to become more cooperative and they, they, thought that these traits had, had evolved in the Aryan race uh, to make them a superior race to the black Africans who they thought were but lazy because they grew up in tropical climates where they didn't have to work very hard. Uh, and they thought that they were sexually promiscuous. And they thought that these were the kinds of biological traits that had evolved within the, the black Africans, for example. When they looked at the Jews, they believed the Jews had these certain evolved traits as well. And usually it corresponded with the stereotypes that had pre-Darwinian uh, origins uh, that the Jews were greedy, that they were deceitful, that they were uh, sexually immoral. And so this is they thought that these were biologically ingrained traits uh, that had come about through biological evolution. 
over time, similar to the way that people today would talk about evolutionary psychology or sociobiology uh, and such. And so they saw the races as having evolved in this ways, in these ways. But perhaps even more importantly, they applied the Darwinian struggle for existence to races, just like Charles Darwin himself did. Charles Darwin himself thought that the uh, human races were in competition for scarce resources uh, and that the superior ones were going to triumph uh, and that the inferior ones uh, were going to die out ultimately. Uh, and certainly Hitler appropriated that idea and thought that the Aryan race was locked in this inescapable struggle for existence with other races. And uh, the struggle for existence is a struggle for existence. It's a struggle for life and death. Uh, it's a struggle that has to result in the death of large numbers of people, in fact, uh, in order because of the, the notion that there was this uh, the population would outstrip the food supply. Uh, and so this is a very driving force in, in Hitler's ideology. Another key way, too, is that uh, the notion of gaining living space. So the, the notion that brought Hitler to launching World War II, this notion of living space was a notion that was developed by a Darwinian biologist uh, who became a geographer. And then he framed this idea about there being this struggle over living space because he thought that's, of course, Living space is where you would get your agricultural produce from. So, you know, that's where the uh, so you're fighting the Darwinian struggle for existence, he thought, was a fight over land. Uh, and so Hitler imbibed that idea of living space. And he saw that was, a, again, part of the Darwinian struggle for existence. So Hitler thinks that he's acting in accordance with natural laws, especially evolutionary laws, when he is launching his war to gain living space when he's destroying people of other races, and also when he's destroying people with, aside from the racism, even the, his euthanasia program and such killing people with disabilities. Again, he sees it all as part of sort of helping the evolutionary process forward and bringing about biological progress. Mm. So what about some of the, the particular claims that you see out there on the internet? I remember writing something where someone among their various claims was that, oh, but the, the Nazis opposed evolution and ban tried to ban it from schools. Where does yeah. this come from? Yeah, one of the, the key things is there's they it's very selective use of evidence. And it's basically a use of, of a few pieces of stray evidence that are mis very often misconstrued. And then just they ignore the mountains of evidence that oppose their particular position, which is what I bring forward in this book, Darwinian Racism. I bring forward incredible amount of evidence uh, to show that that's just malarkey, that the, the, the Nazis had banned Darwinism. And so here's the piece of evidence they use for that. There was a banned book list that was published in 1935 in a German journal for libraries called Die Bücherei. And in that banned book list, it mentioned uh, books that pertain to uh, primitive Darwinism. That was the term that was used uh, there. Uh, and it specifically mentioned Ernst Haeckel. Uh, now, they use that and say, see, the, the Nazis banned Darwin. But however, they just uh, there's huge some huge problems with that. First of all, I said primitive Darwinism would suggest that it's probably they're talking about what they consider misinterpretations of Darwinism. But whether that's true or not, this was a book list that was put together by a Saxon librarian. There's no there, there by the way, are multiple banned book lists by the Nazis, and no other banned book list in the Nazis ever includes Darwin or Heckel in them. Also, Darwin's and Heckel's books were still being published 
during the Third Reich. And I provide evidence for that in uh, my book that you, you can find that, that publishers were still publishing Heckel's works then. Also, there was an Ernst Heckel Society that was formed in 1942. Ernst Heckel was the leading German Darwinian biologist in the pre-Nazi period. He died before the Nazi period came about. Uh, but uh, there was an Ernst Heckel Society that was formed by uh, Darwinian biologists who were promoting uh, uh, Heckel's ideas and Darwin, Darwinist ideas. Uh, and the, the People who formed that, one of them key figures was an SS officer who was the rector of y University of Jena. Uh, and, and they also got permission from some of the highest ranking Nazi officials to form this society, showing that Heckel was not banned, mm -hmm. much less Darwin during that time. And when I say highest ranking officials, uh, Rosenberg. Uh, was one of the key officials, Alfred Rosenberg, uh, who was one of the leading Nazi ideologists, uh, and also Martin Bormann, both gave permission to form this Ernst Heckel Society uh, at that time. And Fritz Zaukel, who was the Gauleiter, the Nazi district leader of that region of Thuringia, he actually was considered the uh, honorary uh, leader, honorary president or whatever of that society. So uh, I bring forth an, a wealth of evidence and Maybe one of the most interesting pieces of evidence or most powerful pieces of evidence that I bring forward in my book is the way that Darwinism was used in the Nazi biology curriculum. Because if you want to find out what the Nazis taught about Darwinism, look at what they put in the schools. And they actually did publish in 1938 a, an official Nazi curriculum for the schools. And one of the chapters is on biology. And lo and behold, if you read that chapter on biology, Darwinian evolution plays a very prominent role, including the evolution of humans and including the evolution of races, uh, which was going to be a cornerstone in uh, of Nazi ideology. And again, we see it in a lot of other uh, things too. And I bring forth an avalanche of evidence in my book to show that, not just these things I've just mentioned. Yeah, no, you do. This, this is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Yeah. Right. So one final thing on, on this point, uh, again, often I've seen people claim, well, all this ignores the fact that, that Hitler was actually a Christian creationist who opposed evolution <laughs> that Hitler yeah. himself. Right. Yeah, I have a chapter on Hitler himself, and I've, I've written an entire book on Hitler's religion, in which I argue that he was a pantheist because he believed that nature was God. And people who, when they look at Hitler's talking about God in various contexts, uh, uh, just make the assumption that he's talking about the Christian God, when that's not really the case. And if you look at how he construes God, and again, I bring, I have a whole book that deals with that issue. Uh, when you look at how he construes God, he's talking about nature, and he thinks that uh, part of nature, he thinks, is the Darwinian struggle for existence. So he thinks that he's cooperating with nature and the morality that nature is putting forward by uh, trying to drive human evolution forward and by you know, winning the struggle for existence for the Aryan race, which he considers a superior race. Yeah. Um, sort of piggybacking on that, I want to move to your book contains some striking original illustrations from Nazi propaganda works mm -hmm. to demonstrate just how and document just how much the Nazis framed their views in Darwinian terms. One really stuck in my mind, and I don't recall it from your other works, maybe it was there, but it was, uh, how shall I put it? Um, it dealt with the Nazi view of Christmas. So we just talked about Hitler's real view of, of yeah. religion. Tell us, if you can, about the Christmas book circulated by the Nazis in 
I think it was 1943 and 44, intended to lift the spirit to the German people. But this book didn't feature Silent Night or Jesus's birth, I don't think. What 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 was the front piece? Or you know, Yeah, the front piece was a quotation by Hitler in which he is talking about how all of nature is in a struggle. Uh, and uh, the the note and he's he's trying to basically whip the German people up to keep fighting the war. That's basically the idea here, you know, this this Christmas book uh, that he has. So uh, the idea is not to, you know, point people to Jesus or to God or anything like that, you know, which you'd think might be a, a theme in Christmas, certainly if he's a Christian, which other people are trying to argue, uh, but rather uh, they're trying to, and if you, by the way, if you look through the book, if you look through the entire book, and aside from just the funnest frontest piece there's absolutely nothing about jesus in the entire book it's all about you know uh christmas celebrations and different kinds of ways that and in fact a lot of there were germans a lot of nazis at the time were talking about trying to revert back to the older pre-christian celebrations the pagan original pagan celebrations uh, of the uh winter solstice at that time so uh, and by the way hitler's uh chauffeur and others in the hitler's entourage uh, actually uh, testified uh, later about Hitler that he didn't even like Christmas. He would very often go out driving on Christmas because he didn't want to be around the Christmas festivities and different things like that. So he wasn't celebrating Christ's birth on Christmas at all. Yeah, I was just struck by, you know, everyone would think Christmas, even in yeah. secular terms in America, uh, is about peace on earth, goodwill. But yeah. here, they sent out a Christmas book, and I actually did write down the quote, and I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, so I didn't expect you to do it, but here's what Hitler said, that all of nature is a powerful struggle between power and weakness, an eternal victory of the strong over the weak. Yeah. So that was Hitler's Christmas card or Christmas book to his population. It was not yeah. urging them peace on earth, it was crush the weak. Yeah. What a what a Christmas message and very Darwinian. Okay. Yeah. Um, you already mentioned the 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 eugenics, but I want to hone in on that just a little bit mm -hmm. more. Uh, the attempt sort of to breed a better race by harnessing the powers mm -hmm. of selection and things. Nazi eugenics, it turns out, has been a key subplot in two recent popular TV series, the dystopian Man in the High Castle on Amazon and the World War II drama World on Fire on both the BBC and PBS. Mm -hmm. Often I've been frustrated when filmmakers cover eugenics because they neatly sort of sidestep the Darwin or the, the ideological origins or rationale of it. So I was actually shocked, actually surprised at how directly World on Fire dealt with this issue. And, and so I want to just show a brief clip where there's an American journalist who's interviewing a German doctor scientist involved in the eugenics program that was killing the disabled. And here's how the doctor in this TV show justifies what they were doing. Dr. Vaus alleviates suffering. Yes, but the policy doesn't only talk about alleviating suffering. It talks about not infecting the gene pool. Human progress is driven by natural selection. Is that an accurate depiction of, of how the Nazis were arguing for eugenics? Oh, exactly. And what they thought was that in modern human societies uh, that we had uh, helped the weak and the sick to such an extent uh, that we were allowing them to reproduce. And they thought this was a horrible thing. And so they needed to try to offset it. Uh, and so eugenics was an attempt to introduce artificial selection because they thought that natural selection had been set aside 
in civilized yeah. society. So it was based upon Darwinian premises. Uh, and this is very clear. In fact, if you look at the, the Nazi propaganda for their compulsory sterilization program and for their eugenics program, uh, their Darwinian themes that are laced through them, I mean, very overt Darwinian themes, not just something that I'm reading into it or something. You know, they actually mentioned Darwin and they mentioned his influence and, and impacts and bringing about the understanding of biology that allowed them now to run this eugenics program. I'm so glad you brought out the that although eugenics was sort of artificial selection, the, the whole rationale was we were being too nice by getting rid of natural yeah. selection. And so we had to re- do something like that, because I've I remember reading something by historian Daniel Kevlis, where he was poo-pooing. Oh, there was no connection with between eugenics and Darwinism and it, because you know that's artificial selection. Well, but if you read the people, as you point out, <laughs> they point out, you know, this in other words, this is the kinder, yeah. gentler way. You know, we right. don't have to go back to the law of the jungle. Or if we're not willing to do that, we we do it artificially. But you know, the, the premises were Darwinian premises exactly. about how you get human progress. So exactly. Okay. Your book isn't, although mostly about Nazis, it's not just about German Nazis anyway, you have a substantial chapter about Darwinian racism today in America. And I wonder if you could just give us a little preview of, of that. Yeah. So I looked at in, in investigating this book, I looked at the way that neo-Nazis in the post-war period uh, all the way up until today, and sometimes they go under the name of white nationalists or sometimes alt-right. There's different names. These are overlapping categories. I looked at the way that they had uh, construed racism. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, they do their name well of neo-Nazis because they basically recycle the Nazi ideology to a very striking degree. I mean, they even make the same kind of arguments about the, you know, the ice age and such as having been you know, selective pressure that has made the, the Northern Europeans uh, superior uh, and such. And there's so the recycling exactly the ideas that were around in the early 20th century uh, that Hitler and others had imbibed uh, there. Uh, I, as I was doing that research, I came across a really horrifying uh, book. Uh, and the way I came across this was because in 2019, there was a mass shooting that took place in Gilroy, California, at the Garlic Festival. Uh, and in that mass shooting, or before the mass shooting, the per- perpetrator posted to his social media that people should read a book by Ragnar Redbeard, which is called Might is Right. And the subtitle of it is Survival of the Fittest. And I'm an expert in social Darwinism, but this book really blew me away. It's really uh, one of the most incendiary pieces of social Darwinist literature that you could imagine. Uh, Extremely anti-Christian, very Nietzschean, but also very Darwinian and forthrightly so. I mean, he actually quotes from Darwin's uh, Descent of Man. Uh, He talks uh, quite often about uh, the races in Darwinian terms and the Darwinian struggle for existence between races uh, and such. And this book, I found out, is being promoted by a lot of white nationalist websites. Uh, Some, I I think there was even one that had a PDF uh, of it on their uh, website, if I recall correctly. And the other ones had it for sale and such. Uh, This book, by interestingly, uh, was not very well known when it was written. It was written in 1896. Uh, published in 1896 originally. It was not very well known until it was actually uh, 
publicized by Anton LaVey in his Satanic Bible. Uh, he actually cribbed parts of Redbeard's uh, book. And uh, LaVey then began recommending this book to uh, his followers in his Satanic church. Uh, but of course, uh, this is not the only direction of white nationalism. There's actually uh, some, even some, uh, a few uh, academics, not many. There's again, it's, part of, it's a fringe. Uh, group, but Kevin McDonald, for example, is now a retired uh, psychology professor at California State University, Long Beach. Uh, he wrote three major, uh, very thick tomes uh, that are extremely anti-Semitic and, bas and basically uses evolutionary psychology to try to explain uh, the uh, both the identity of the Jews themselves and also how anti-Semitism functions uh, against the Jews. And basically, again, he sees the, the uh, uh, white, the uh, Nordics, or, or I don't think he uses the word Nordic in his writings. I think he just speaks more about uh, the Europeans and the European descendants as being opposed to the uh, Jews in this Darwinian struggle for existence. And he sees, his, he sees the, he believes anti-Semitism is a sort of inborn trait in whites that help us in the Darwinian struggle for existence. And that's a very forthright view. Again, he's writing evolutionary psychology uh, in these matters. So, uh, and he's not alone. I mean, uh, another individual that maybe more of you have heard, might've heard of is uh, Richard Spencer, who uh, several years ago became fairly well-known for his alt-right uh, ideology and such. And uh, here I have a quote of his that I have right here where Spencer said, quote, that group differences exist as consequences of evolution by natural selection. So mm. there you have it. You know, he's, wow. he's interpreting race as based upon, as having originated through uh, natural selection. And then wow. he also said, quote, that racial differences are a natural and normal consequence of human evolution. Yeah. So people on the alt-right and white nationalists today are pushing the same uh, ideology that the Nazis mm. were pushing uh, during their heyday. Yeah. It, it is really disturbing that that and you know I don't I don't want to overplay the alt right the, I, I usually call it the so called alt right because their beliefs are a mishmash of all sorts of things from socialism yeah. to conservatism, but um, when you look at these disturbed people like that mass shooter in in Gilroy and uh, these ideas are having an effect on disturbed individuals and and. And we have to recognize that. I mean, it's a poisonous ideology. And, uh, you know, even you know, Hitler and his views were out there on the fringe uh, at the beginning. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think we should be concerned about that. And I think everyone for the price of the book is worth that chapter alone, <laughs> I think, uh, and really a wake up call for how these these ideas are still being uh, used in various ways, disturbing ways. Mm -hmm. So I want to end this section with uh, a more personal question about your own journey. Mm -hmm. Through your books and journal articles, I'd argue you've really become the world's leading authority on the intellectual and historical connections between Darwinian theory and Darwinism and Nazism. What started you out on this journey? And maybe what are what's the most striking thing you discovered in your research along the way? Yeah, I think some people get the mistaken uh, uh, supposition that I started off trying to trying to find connections between Darwinism and Nazism. And actually, when I was going through my graduate school, I wasn't even really that interested in 
the history of Nazism. I mean, I studied modern German history, so I studied it, uh, but I thought that it had been sort of overstudied, that there were two, lots of people already doing Nazi Germany. So I was going to do other things. So I was more interested in the 19th century, and I was working on late 19th century uh, intellectual history. And my dissertation was on the reception of Darwinism by German socialists in the late 19th century. And as I was doing that research, I got very interested in how certain German Darwinists, especially Ernst Haeckel, but also others, uh, were trying to use evolutionary ethics to replace uh, Judeo-Christian ethics or in Kantian ethics or any other kind of ethics for that matter. Uh, and so I got interested in the issue of evolutionary ethics. So that sort of launched me into my next research project, which was ultimately going to become from Darwin to Hitler. But when I began it, I wasn't even thinking of Hitler. I was mm. just thinking of evolutionary ethics. And so I just tried to try to, but as I got into my project in evolutionary ethics, I started finding out that the people who were promoting evolutionary ethics by the 1890s and early 1900s uh, were very often also promoting eugenics, they were promoting scientific racism. And I started uh, saying, you know, this sounds a lot like Nazi ideology. <laughs> and so the more I explored, and then I started looking at Hitler's ideology in greater depth uh, and finding out, yeah, I mean, Hitler really was embracing ideas of evolutionary ethics, uh, even though he didn't use that term. You know, he described the ideas of morality being biologically ingrained and other kinds of things that really were talking about evolutionary ethics. So that's where that book then uh, from Darwin to Hitler came about, because I was looking at evolutionary ethics and I thought, OK, they're, they're disconnected with Hitler's ideology. Once I published that book, then I received a lot of criticism for making that connection. And so then I've been defending my I've been defending that position and pr producing even more. Uh, evidence to show that my position makes sense. I published Hitler's Ethic in 2009 uh, that looks just at Hitler's ideology. And then this particular book on Darwinian racism expands the view. Uh, I do have one chapter that overlaps with my earlier work by looking at Hitler himself. So there's one chapter on Hitler. But then I expand the view by looking at uh, other German biologists and anthropologists during the Nazi period. I look at uh, the biology curriculum. I look at biology textbooks. I look at uh, Nazi propaganda and such. Whereas my earlier work with, I mean, from Darwin to Hitler was actually pre-1914, really, except for the chapter on Hitler. Uh, and then Hitler's ethic was just on Hitler. So I've expanded the view to look at a lot of other. And then also I have a chapter on eugenics as well and how they were using yeah. Darwinism to justify eugenics. So yeah. I, I broaden it out and I'm looking actually at the Nazi period itself, except for the last chapter. Well, the first chapter is on Darwin himself. So that's pre-Nazi. And then the rest of it is on the Nazi period, except the last chapter then on the white nationalists. Yeah, right. And if people want sort of, uh, in addition to reading the book, want previews of, say, uh, Dr. Weikert uh, talking about these things, he is in a number of videos. So uh, a lot of the, sort of the kernel, sort of a 14-minute distillation of From Darwin to Hitler is The Biology of the Second Reich. You can find that actually now on Rumble as well as uh, on uh, YouTube. YouTube sort of put a age restriction on it, um, and so harder to watch on there. Uh, and then in Human Zoos, he also talks about many of the things. And then, uh, so there are various ways I hope that people will explore. The book is Darwinian Racism by historian Richard Weikart. You can find out more at darwinianracism.org, and you can purchase it at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, or other online booksellers. What questions do people have about the connection between Darwinism and racism? 
This is John West, Vice President of Discovery Institute. Today, we are joined by historian Richard Weichart, author of a new book just released that is titled Darwinian Racism, How Darwinism Influenced Hitler, Nazism, and White Nationalism. Dr. Weichart is going to answer questions that have been submitted during a live webinar from hundreds of people around the world relating to the topics of his book. You can find out more about Dr. Weichert's book at darwinianracism.org, and you can purchase it at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, and other online booksellers. Dr. Weichert is Emeritus Professor of History at California State University Stanislaus and the author of multiple books on the intellectual history surrounding Nazism. Dr. Weichert, Richard, thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Now, we have lots of interesting questions, so let's get started. Um, one family who actually is homeschooling their, their son, they wonder if any of the many academics who promoted these views in Nazi Germany of sort of Darwinian racism ever stood trial for their role in promoting Nazism and its promotion of genocide. Well, there weren't any that were... Uh prosecuted just for the ideology, just for promoting different, their ideological perspectives. Uh, in fact, a lot of, after World War II, a lot of people, uh, academics especially, were able to uh, basically uh, hide their uh, views to some degree to, to avoid uh, persecution by the denazification panels. However, uh, there were some people, of course, who were involved in the atrocities directly, directly in the killing. Uh, and one person, per, just as one example, was Karl Brandt, who was Hitler's personal physician. Uh, Karl Brandt was completely uh, convinced uh, that the killing of people with disabilities was a good thing, that it was promoting the well-being of society. Uh, and and uh, he had absolutely no uh, qualms about it, uh, even as he was put on trial, he believed that what he was doing was right. Uh, so uh, there are many uh, Nazi figures that were completely unrepentant. If we think about the people like uh, people like maybe Eugen Fischer, who was uh, one of the leading anthropologists in Germany, or people like him, most of them escaped any kind of uh, serious ramifications. There were some people that were removed from professorships uh, as a result of their uh, pro-Nazi uh, policies, but that's probably about as far as it went for most of them, unless they were directly involved in the killing. Okay. Um, this question is from someone who says, regarding the Nazi leadership, do you think they actively thought about Darwinism and its implications, or did they just passively absorb it without really thinking about it? Was it part of their conversation, their strategy? And we're going to actually uh, join this with another question where someone was asking, they've always been curious if we know something about the training, for example, of SS officers, uh, those most likely to be in the midst of the extermination activities, to what degree was Darwinian thinking a formal part of their training? And so, so w were they trained that? And then were they just passive? Uh, or did they actively believe it? Those are the sorts of questions that we have a few people asking. Yeah, interestingly, that I, I really that's that second question is really uh, interesting because in my book, in the chapter on Nazi propaganda, I have a, a short section on an SS 
pamphlet that was used to train the SS uh, in their worldview. Uh, and it's divided up into class sections. So this was used like in a, 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 a ideological training, you know, for SS and not, not just SS, it's SS and, and police forces. Uh, but there is actually an entire class period on Darwinian evolution. So it was taught very forthrightly uh, to the SS. Uh, and they did make very clear the connections with uh, the evolution of races and the racial struggle uh, and such. Uh, and that's not the only one. There's also another uh, pamphlet also that was uh, used by the, the SS and the Nazis for ide ideological indoctrination of army, off of army personnel and such, too, that has very overt Darwinian uh, things. So this was something that they were uh, very uh, forthright about. Uh, it's not something that's hidden. And that's, again, why it's so remarkable that people make these ridiculous claims that the, the Nazis were creationists. They were outright claiming uh, that they were using biological evolution uh, for these things. If you look at Hitler himself, in his monologues, Hitler discusses biological evolution. He doesn't use Darwin's name specifically, but he talks about biological evolution. In fact, there's one dialogue of his, I think it was Octo in October 1941, I could have that date slightly off, but where he was uh, talked extensively about how when he was in, in school, he'd been taught biological evolution in his biology, in his science class, and then he was taught creation in his religion class. Uh, and he talked about how the, the difference between those being taught those two things. And it's very clear that he claimed that he was siding with uh, the biological evolution uh, side and uh, promoting that uh, particular idea. So yeah, these are very, uh, they may not have always used the term Darwinism or Darwin, but they very often use the term biological evolution. They very often use the term uh, struggle for existence, which in German is Kampfungsdasein or Daseinskampf. They use that term quite frequently. Uh, they use terms racial struggle. And by that, they meant the racial struggle for existence. They use terms like selection, quite often natural selection, and also sometimes they just shorten it to selection. Uh, so they were using these terms constantly uh, in their uh, propaganda, in their dialogues and such. Okay. Uh, this person asks, uh, how would the Nazis or Darwin himself view Whoopi Goldberg, which um, is an interesting uh, thing. Of course, uh, Whoopi Goldberg was noted for the comments about that uh, she didn't think that the the Nazis' ideas thought they were evil, but that they didn't involve racism. And so, someone wants to know, um, uh, you know, how would the Nazis or Darwin himself view Whoopi Goldberg? Well, both Darwin and the Nazis would have viewed her as biologically inferior because of her race. Quite yeah. simply, yeah. Um, now, this uh, person asked a question, which I think is is really I've I've seen it a lot, and so I'm, I'm glad this was raised. I have read and seen some who will grant that Hitler used Darwinian ideas to justify his actions, but that this was simply, this was an abuse of Darwinism, a twisting of those ideas to serve his own purposes. And they'll point out that Christians will do something similar with the Crusades. Is this a fair defense or is there something about Darwinian ideas that devalues human life necessarily? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and uh, first of all, it's important to understand that uh, when Hitler and other Nazis were appropriating uh, these ideas, uh, 
uh, they were not making them up themselves. They were taking over ideas that were already being propagated by Darwinian biologists. Again, it's, it's the scientists. It, it, these were not some fringe publicists that were creating these ideas about living space and about a racial struggle for existence. Uh, these were Darwinian biologists that were creating uh, these kinds of ideas. So if it was indeed a misinterpretation of Darwinism, it was a misinterpretation that Darwinian biologists were themselves promoting uh, during this time. So yes, uh, of course, Darwinian biologists today are not going to agree uh, with this way of racism. So they're going to say, no, it's a misinterpretation of Darwinism. Uh, and yes, they can argue uh, about that. But, by, but what I would say to them too, by the way, is that if they are arguing that these things are misinterpretations of Darwinism, they're not arguing with me and my historical uh, interpretation. What they're doing is they're arguing with the Nazis, and they're arguing with those Darwinian biologists of the late 19th and early 20th century that were embracing those ideas, and they're arguing with the white nationalists around today who are still embracing those ideas. Now, of course, you can embrace Darwinism and not embrace racism, and there are plenty of Darwinists around today who are not racist. We're not trying to say that you know everyone who embraces Darwinism is a racist. That's not the point. Uh, but there is a certain logic to it uh, that uh, they're going to have to you know, find uh, reasoning to get around because there's a certain logic to when Darwin wrote The Origin of Species, his first two chapters, he didn't, by the way, he didn't talk much about human evolution in that book. He barely mentions humans right at the end of the book. But his first two chapters are on variation. The first chapter is on variation under domestication. The second chapter is on variation in nature. And so for Darwin to make evolution plausible, he had to show that there was significant variations within species. And so when he turned his attention in the descent of man to humans, he had to try to show to convince his contemporaries that humans had evolved. He had to try to show that there was as much variation as possible so that some people are closer to, you know, the brute beasts than others and others are uh, more intellectually superior. And so by doing that way, Hitler, uh, Darwin was going to claim that the, uh, human races were subspecies. That's the term he uses for them. So he thought there was, even though he thought they're all part of one species, he says there's lots of commonalities, there's lots of things, the same similarities, but he still saw them as being subspecies and having some key differences. And then in Germany, a lot of the Darwinists were even more intensely racist than Darwin himself, Ernst Haeckel in particular, who actually claimed that there are 10 different human species. He divided the races. He saw 10 different races that he thought were 10 different, completely different, uh, different species. He even, even thought that those were different, that there were four different genera that those species were part of. So he really divided uh, things up. But these are Darwinian biologists doing this. Uh, so this is not some fringe wacko publicists, you know, that were framing these uh, kinds of ideas. Um, yes, I, I think that's a really good point. We're going to ask a few more questions relating to the Nazis in history, and then we have some questions from people that sort of tie into more today that we'll, we'll get to. Um, and then some particular questions about your book, which I want to get to. So uh, now this comes actually from, from a doctor who says Lipton's text, Nazi doctors is quite informative of the mindset in the concentration death camps. What evidence is there that Darwinism was a prevailing notion among doctors, not just some, not just a doctor like Mengele, but more widely? among doctors? 
Well, that's going to be tr tricky in a, a couple of levels here. For one thing, there was lots of Jewish doctors in Germany in the pre-Nazi period. Of course, many of them were going to okay. be forced out of their positions. So you had large numbers of Jewish doctors who obviously are not going to agree with uh, Nazi uh, policies and relating to race, even though a lot of the Jewish doctors may have believed in Darwinism too. Uh, and actually, there were a lot of Jews, uh, not just in Germany, but elsewhere too, who embraced eugenics as well, uh, who embraced uh, Darwinism. Uh, but um, there, among the physicians in Germany, you're also there also were in the Catholic parts of Germany more that were opposed to eugenics and sterilization and uh, perhaps racism as well uh, during that time too. So I, I think we need to be careful that we don't sort of lump all the people into one thing. But the Nazis did have lots of physicians that were cooperative uh, with them as well. And there's been a lot of scholarship that's been done by uh, by historians looking at the way that, and not just Lifton's book, Lifton's actually a psychiatrist, but there's been a lot of work that's been done by, uh, on the eugenics programs in Germany, on Carl uh, Brandt himself. There's a good biography on Carl Brandt. Uh, there's a lot of work about not, and a lot of work on the euthanasia program as well. And the work in the euthanasia program shows that the Nazis did not have any difficulty finding uh, physicians who were willing to help them uh, with their euthanasia program. And even though a lot of them may not have been uh, writing things that were public, that were drawing the connections between Darwinism and the euthanasia program, uh, some did. And those that did embrace the euthanasia program very often did have this same kind of Darwinian basis of devaluing human life as a result of their views of Darwinian evolution. Okay. Now, you have a couple historical questions relating specifically to Darwin himself. Uh, one asking, basically, is there any evidence that Darwin himself had racist views? Okay. Uh, in, yes. In fact, I just I was just reading a book today that was published last year on the 150th anniversary of Descent of Man. And the uh, person who wrote that, Augustin Fuentes, wrote an essay in there. He's an anthropologist. I think he's at, no, they're not saved. I'm not exactly sure. Mm -hmm. I, but in an Ivy League school, in any case, uh, he's a prominent anthropologist. And he had a little section in his essay on was Darwin a racist? And yeah, he said, well, yeah, he was a racist. You know, that's pretty well understood by historians that Darwin was a racist. Uh, some people will just excuse him by saying, well, just about all Victorians were racists, which isn't exactly true. And I talk about this briefly in my book. Uh, David Livingston, for example, was uh, a British living contemporary of Darwin's. Uh, he was a missionary and physician who went to Africa uh, and he was living among black Africans and was well, very well loved by the black Africans uh, because he loved them and he was not racist. Uh, so there were and there were also examples of secular individuals, too, like John Stuart Mill and others who were not uh, racist. So not everyone was racist during the Victorian period, but it, it is true that most people were uh, in Victorian England. So that's how they'll sort of excuse that. But what I find most interesting about Darwin's view is that Darwin is not only justifying and, you know, trying to corroborate his theory using evidence, the evidence of racism, which he sees as helping to support his theory. But he's also uh, putting forth the idea that these races are locked in a in a struggle for existence. Uh, and this means, and when he frames this and talks about examples of it, he has actually a section in chapter seven of The Descent of Man. He has a, a, a section which is called The Extinction of Races. And in that 
chapter, in that section of that chapter, he gives examples of Europeans exterminating other peoples, indigenous peoples, uh, as showing that the Darwinian struggle for existence is going on. And so it's clear from that, as well as from some of his correspondence, uh, that Darwin thought that the uh, imperialism, uh, European imperialism, British in particular, uh, was a progressive force that was making the world a better place, even though it was being carried out by genocide. And he recognizes by killing off the peoples. It's not by elevating the peoples there. It's by killing them off. Mm. Wow. So uh, we have another historical question about which I, I hear all the time um, asking, wasn't it uh, Herbert Spencer responsible for the phrase survival of the fittest? And if so, did he advance an extension of Darwin's thoughts beyond Darwin or what, you know, what was the connection there? Yeah, Herbert Spencer uh, promoted ideas that uh, is sort of uh, social Darwinism avant la lettre, which means before the time. Yeah, yeah. He was promoting ideas about competition and such before Darwin's theory uh, came about. And he did propose the phrase survival of the fittest uh, and actually wrote that in a letter to Darwin. And Darwin did acknowledge that that phrase was apt. And Darwin did use that phrase later after that. So it's not just a misconstrual of the of Darwinism to use the term survival of the fittest. Darwin himself did not see that as a uh, mistaken uh, way of uh, phrasing uh, it. Uh, Spencer uh, was much more radical than Darwin in writing about social themes. And so he wrote extensively about uh, laissez-faire, economic competition, and such more than Darwin did, uh, certainly publicly. Uh, And so there's a sense in which, yeah, Spencer was a little bit more radical in his social Darwinism, at least I mean, publicizing his social Darwinism. But if you look at Darwin's own writings, Darwin also was a social Darwinist. He did apply his theories to uh, society. He writes, for example, in uh, I'm pretty sure this is in Descent of Man, he says that primogenitor, which was the idea of the, the first, the eldest son inheriting the entire property of the nobility, he said he thought that was a bad idea because it lessened competition. Uh, and, it, and the person who's the eldest may not be the fittest. You know? And so he had these ways that he, he was trying to apply Darwinism to social policy and such too. And then there's a, a letter that I actually sort of rediscovered uh, back in the 1990s when I was doing my dissertation work, uh, and I published it in the History of Science uh, journal ISIS, where Darwin said that he thought that uh, trade unions and cooperatives were a bad idea because they diminished competition. Uh, so this had, again, had to do with this competitive ethos that he thought this natural selection was a good thing as drive bringing progress. Uh, and so uh, he was wanting to see that come about. Okay, great. So we have uh, a lot of questions about applications for today. You've already actually touched on some of that, but I just want a couple of questions asked do you see this use of Darwin being used today, where and how? And then someone asked more particularly, do you see Darwinian ethics used today? Okay. Uh, and the first one about the Darwinian racism being used today. Again, if you look on the white nationalist websites and, you know, thankfully I do still think they are a fringe group, but they're a very vocal fringe group. Uh, and so you do find that on white nationalist websites and uh, in their uh propaganda uh, that they put out. And that's what my last chapter uh, details some of. In terms of the Darwinian ethics, now that's a trickier kind of question because there's all sorts of different ways that Darwinian ethics gets uh, 
promoted today. Uh, there, we have evolutionary psychology around today, uh, and but the notion of evolutionary ethics is quite uh, is featured by some people under that term. Uh, today, I've been to conferences on evolutionary ethics uh, where people are promoting uh, the notion of evolutionary ethics, which really has two kinds of ideas contained in it. One is that ethics have evolved. That's one kind of idea about evolutionary ethics, that ethics have evolved through evolutionary processes. Uh, and so that's what morality is all about. And Darwin believed that, by the way, in his uh, Descent of Man, he talks about the evolution of morality. Uh, and then the other idea about evolutionary ethics, though, and uh, by the way, you can don't have to you can believe both of these or just one. Uh, the second idea is that what promotes uh, evolutionary progress is what is morally good. And that's a second kind of way of framing evolutionary ethics. And that's where the eugenics movement, of course, was going to was going to embrace that. And you get people today embracing both of those ideas. In fact, uh, it seems to me that the notion that ethics and morality have evolved is actually a fairly mainstream, a fairly widespread idea among biologists. Uh, uh, E.O. Wilson with his sociobiology, which came out in the 1970s, was going to promote that idea very strongly. Steven Pinker with his evolutionary psychology promotes that idea very strongly, that, that ethics and morality is just an evolved trait. Uh, and so that idea is fairly mainstream. The, the second idea that what promotes evolution is uh, morally good is not quite as widespread, I don't think, in scientific circles. But you get things like the transhumanist movement, which is promoting that kind of idea as well. So it's out there as well, and also in some academic circles. Okay. So we're we're running out of uh, our time. So want to we're going to need to wrap up in just a moment. But I someone actually asked a really interesting question relating to the American experience. I know your focus is on Germany, but they wonder, uh, we had a couple questions on this about the impact of Darwin's theory on racism and concepts in America in the 20th century. And you've talked about it today with sort of the, the neo-Nazis and right wing, uh, alt-right, so-called so alt-right. But someone asked, wonder if you were aware of a speech given by Charles Francis Adams Jr. in which he felt that in the Civil War, the North was right in fighting for Black equality until he read Darwin. That led him to believe the mm. South and slavery were correct. And then someone else asked, you know, in the 20th century, what were these Darwinian ideas impacting American views? And I don't know if you can speak to that, but I thought since we had a couple questions, I would give you the yeah. chance. Yeah, I can hit it to some degree. Uh, again, I'm not as expert on those on the American scene, but I do know quite well that scientific racism was very widespread on the American scene, especially in the 1890s and first couple of decades of the, the 20th century. Now, it was going to wane in the 1920s and 1930s, especially under the influence of uh, Franz Boas and his anthropological school. Uh, and by the way, if you read Alt-Right uh, Alt and the white nationalist websites today, Franz Boas is one of the most hated figures <laughs> by them because of his bringing about of ideas about cultural determinism uh, and environmental determinism into anthropology rather than 
biological determinism, which had been reigned supreme before uh, Boaz uh, came on the scene. Uh, but there was a good deal of scientific racism. If you look at, uh, I think some people might be familiar with the Scopes trial, the, the Hunter textbook that was used there was promoting scientific racism. I mean, that was a, as a textbook thing, you know, as school kids were being taught that this is scientific, uh, that these people are of different races. And it, this was definitely including that black Africans as being part of the inferior uh, races. Uh, uh, and it was also affecting immigration policy in the United States. Uh, John West, uh, you'd mentioned earlier about the <laughs> Eastern Europeans. Yeah, uh, the there was this was uh, impacting immigration policies of not wanting other races, including Eastern and Southern Europeans, <laughs> to come into the United States in as large of numbers uh, because of scientific racism. So scientific racism had a very profound impact in the United States. And that's one of the things that I hope people will think about, too, in in reading this book, even though I don't talk about the United States. The the really there's really this untold story to some degree of scientific racism. Not that it's completely untold. There are some scholars no. who have uh, dealt with it. Uh, but when you look at this issue of racism and look at the books that are coming out today about racism, I just looked uh, recently at some of the most recent scholarship coming out about racism uh, when I was getting ready for you know uh, this book coming out and everything. And uh, the what a lot of them, what I found was a lot of the books being published by scholars today about racism are about evangelical Christianity and its contribution to racism. You don't find things about the scientists and their contribution to racism. Now, I'm not trying to give evangelical Christianity a pass. There was a lot of horrible racism that was being put forward by people who called themselves evangelical Christians uh, in the uh, mid 20th, in the early 20th century. But what's interesting uh, is that if you look at the way that uh, the sort of the people who are on the forefront of racist uh, agitation and pushing for racism. If you look at what was happening there, uh, there's some good scholarship that has shown that in the middle of the 20th century, there was a key turning point. I mean, you have things in the early 20th century, like the Ku Klux Klan, which did have this sort of Christian identity or claim to have a Christian identity and such. But in the last half of the 20th century, uh, the vast majority of people who consider themselves sort of hardcore racists, white nationalists and such uh, had a very secularized outlook. They were very often anti-Christian uh, and they were very often using Darwinism. Uh, and so they were using scientific racism, not religious conceptions of racism. So when people are trying to you know, combat racism today, uh, Yes, there are still vestiges of it in lots of elements of society, and we need to combat it wherever we find it. Uh, but the biggest uh, uh, and most vocal elements of white nationalism today are pushing a scientific racism based on Darwinism. And I'd encourage people, it's not a book, but if people who are interested in the impact, particularly in the 20th century in America, uh, watch the documentary Human Zoos. It's about an hour long, and, and Dr. Weikart is a key part of it. And that tells just some of that story. And I would say even among the, the people who claim to be Christians, who, who twisted Christianity to promote racism, by the latter part of the 19th century, many of them were imbibing Darwinian justifications for that. Yeah. So it wasn't just that they were citing or misreading the Bible. In many cases, they were, but they were also being reinforced that, well, modern science actually shows it's right. So 
um, and very pernicious. And many of the people, who, of course, who were speaking out against it were both mm-hmm. black pastors, especially, but also uh, a number of white pastors uh, based on their belief that we were created in the image of God, especially the debate wow. over this African man who was put in a uh, in a monkey cage in uh, Mr. Odebenga in the Bronx right. Zoo. It was right. the clergy, yeah. both black and white, who criticized that as being dehumanizing. It was the New York Times, the uh, leading professors at the American Museum of Natural History, uh, Columbia University, Mm -hmm. who poo-pooed any criticism and justified it. So uh, with that, I'll get off my my soapbox (laughs) and say that there is one more question, and then we need to end. But who is your new book pitched at? Academics, lay people, general audience? I hope it's pitched at all of those. Uh, I have written it in a way it is extensively footnoted so that academics can follow it. They can uh, check my sources. They can uh, uh, debate it and everything. But I've written it in a way that I think is intelligible to uh, lay people and and, uh, just about anyone uh, who has a high school education, I think, and maybe even high schoolers themselves uh, would be able to find it accessible. I hope so. So. I, I would agree with that. And someone else asked, what, um, they were so happy that this was at an affordable price because many of your academic books, if you don't set the prices for, are, are quite quite expensive. And I'd say, yeah. this is, uh, you know, it's a new book, but it does conceptualize a lot of things you, you've said elsewhere and add to it and also defend against criticisms. And so in this one book, you, they can get a lot and it, mm-hmm. it doesn't cost $90 for it. To, so um, mm-hmm. it's a great book. Thank you for writing it. Um, yeah. The book is Darwinian Racism by historian Richard Weichart. You can find out more at darwinianracism.org and you can purchase it at amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com and other online booksellers. For ID the Future, thanks for listening. <laughs>